Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. Welcome back to Dresbert, the last Dresbert of 2015. How the hell did that happen? I'm Heather Hurlbert, um, Director of the New Models of Policy Change Program at New America. And I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I write uh, spoiler alerts for the Washington Post. And I devoutly hope that maybe by the time you are watching this, we will be out of Trump mania phase, although I suppose that's unlikely. So yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I have been making the case all over Twitter and in a piece on Vox that there is a Trump effect. It is real. It is already happening. And actually, surprisingly enough, that effect is going to be most pronounced in the national security and the broader national security to include immigration and social solidarity policy arena. All right. Hit me with your hypothesis. I, I will say this as someone who has uh, certainly zero love for uh, Donald Trump or his uh, or his uh, rhetoric, but is still remains unconvinced that he's actually going to win anything. And therefore, six months from now, hopefully we will be in a situation where we can look back on this and laugh. Right. Well, unfortunately, he doesn't have to win anything. Um, okay. So first category of effect, we've seen the um, FBI has statistics showing that hate crimes against Latinos have gone up, I believe it's 50% over the last couple of years as um, sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric has has heightened. So, so you know, okay. we, we do know that just in general, the worse the rhetoric there, you know, there's this, oh, we ought to have a conversation about these issues. It's good to be talking about them. Well, actually, unfortunately, the more we have the kind of conversation in which some people with big public megaphones are saying bigoted things, you know, real people get hurt. Um, so I don't, we don't have numbers for the second half of this year yet, but mm -hmm. just anecdotally, you're seeing a really frightening spike in, um, mistreatment of American Muslims and, you know, just things that I, as a, as a parent and a human being find really horrifying, like kids, teachers trying to pull their headscarves off, asking them if they're terrorists, um, you know, just all kinds of things that 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 nobody wants to see happening. That unfortunately, my, my personal favorite in this in the anecdotal category is always the flight attendants. They're the worst. Oh God, yeah. Um, the the ways in which flight attendants will say, "No, you can't fly," just for no reason whatsoever, right? Uh, because they they look vaguely Muslim. But go ahead. I just yeah. I mean, if the number of times in my job, if I could have said to people, you know, um, I'm not dealing with you because you make me uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't have a job anymore, but never mind. So, yeah. so you know, just at the purely human level, I mean, there's there's really not any question that Trump's. I mean, then you've seen you know people beat up at Trump's rallies, people beat you know, frankly, idiots who were idiots anyway, going out and beating up you know homeless Hispanic people and saying, oh, this is for Donald Trump. Oh right, there was that case in Boston yes. actually a couple. Yeah. Of months. So there's no question that there's been an uptick in that, and the data at the end of the year are going to show it now. That, you know, that matters because I want to live in a country where my neighbors also feel safe walking around. But there was a, there's been a really interesting study um, actually done out of Israel that um, came out recently that the more the community, American Muslim communities that experienced more hate crimes tended to produce less assimilated residents. So actually this sort of spewing of hate works just the way ISIS or whomever wants it to work. That it forces Muslim communities in the United States to turn inward rather than try to integrate. Yes. Yes. 
So, so you, you know, you, you're producing by having a spell of rhetoric like this, um, an effect that'll, that'll be felt for quite a bit longer than after Donald Trump, God willing, leaves, leaves the scene. So, so that's effect number one. And, you know, it's, it's, it's non-trivial just as, as someone who wants to live here. I, okay. So, you know, let me, let me, again, <laughs> first of all, in some ways, we're actually replaying a debate that I believe Nate Silver and Dave Weigel had uh, a week or two ago yep. about the relevance of reporting on Trump, yep. um, in which Silver's argument is essentially, look, Trump is not going to win. You know, we have enough political science to suggest that it's, or it's extremely low probability. And yet Trump has gotten a disproportionate share of the media coverage. Indeed, if you compare, for example, you know, Trump's, you know, polling performance with, let's say, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is actually getting more support. Um, even though he's losing that race. Uh, and yet the media coverage is just wildly disproportionate. And therefore, why is that the case? And I believe why, you know, Weigel's response is essentially your response. And I think it's a valid one, which is to say, look, even if Donald Trump does not win, this is a, an important story. Um, and, you know, even if he's a losing campaign, it's a losing campaign, then it's an important losing campaign yeah. um, because it has it has real world effects. Yeah. So then effect um, effect number two is that Trump saying. Wait, wait, hold on. Oh. I got I want to rebut, though, a little bit. Oh, so okay. I, I, not in the sense of I, I, I take all of your data, but I would say two things on this. The first is, is that, as you point out, the very increase in sort of hate crimes against Latinos far precedes Trump. So, you know, this is not. It's not like Trump came in de novo and suddenly, you know, ginned up this kind of resentment. This resentment has been low lying in the United States for quite some time, which then leads to the next argument, which is to say Trump is not the first candidate to prey upon this kind of nativist rhetoric. Um, you know, think David Duke and Pat Buchanan in 1992, for example. Um, uh, you know, that, that's the the one that sort of comes to mind. So I guess my question is. The one slight difference about Trump, you could say, is that he's the front runner as opposed or he's viewed as the front runner as opposed to some of these previous, um, you know, George Wallace type candidates that that uh, were able to speak about this. But I don't know if that's a significant enough effect. And then the other thing or, or think about Michelle Bachman, for example, in, in 2012. And the other thing is, is that if we take the snapshot right now, I understand your concern. The interesting question is, is that if Trump flames out. Does that then wind up dampening the very effect that you're talking about? In other words, is this a permanent scar or is opposed to a sort of cut that will eventually heal itself? Right. Well, that actually leads right to my second argument, which is the fact that Trump is the front runner right. and that um, the Republican Party has been so slow and so late and so spotty in disavowing the most extreme things that he says that he, you know, if you look at the proposals of Ted Cruz and others, um, you know, everyone has now forgotten that there were proposals to only let Syrian Christians into the country to impose a religious test. Jeff Bush refugees. did that. Yeah, Bush exactly. did that. But nobody, you know, that's not interesting to talk about anymore. So it's a, the shift in the Overton window, I think. Yes. Is what the yes. Like. So Trump is shifting the Overton window. And here I think, um, oh dear, and I'm Yes, it was Weigel who wrote this, that the the Wallace compare I mean the Wallace comparison yeah. is what I worry about, right? Like Wallace Wallace ran four times and was never elected. Right. But, you know, there's no question that Wallace getting out in public and saying what he said and it being clear to party elders that Wallace represented a chunk of opinion that they wanted to keep in the party, um, that changed American politics for the long term. 
And I don't well, know. Well, wait a minute. I mean, hold it, hold it. In mm. fact, Democrats wound up not keeping Wallace as part of the party in the Democratic Party. I mean, that you know, that chunk of the party switched from essentially Democrat to Republican. So, and it switched as a sort of strong, unified swath. I mean, the met to, to go back to something you suggested a minute ago. The message that came out of the George Wallace experience was not these opinions are so toxic that you um, white working folks from the South should go home and change them. The message was you need to find a better home for those opinions. And, oh, look, we found one. So so this is my worry about the trial. Look, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that people and interestingly, the, the refugee community, the refugee advocacy community had been warning for months that this kind of backlash was coming. And, and I have to say, I did not take that all. I didn't take it seriously enough in, in retrospect when I talked to my colleagues who work in those agencies. And I just thought, no, 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 we can handle it. But um, yeah, it was out there. Trump didn't invent it. Trump is taking advantage of it because he's very clever that way. Mm-hmm. But but exactly where does that energy go? And if the energy, I mean, actually, that's a great, you know, sort of interesting analogy. If the energy that was pent up by George Wallace ended up sort of resolving itself by sort of shearing off of one political party and cleaving to the other, mm-hmm. what's the place that this energy goes, assuming that Republicans are able to tamp it down and nominate somebody who doesn't doesn't go it's to- not overtly racist slash fascist yeah um well i think there's two possibilities here the first is is that you know depending on how this plays out it would not at this point it would not shock me if donald trump decides to run in, as a third party uh in, in other words i and let me all right so hold on let me step back i am premising this on the notion that whatever energy that that it seems like trump has actually developed it will actually not wind up going to Trump once people actually have to vote. Um, my suspect is it, my, my suspicion is it'll shift to Cruz somewhat um, and or those people will not vote. In other words, that, that, you know, all of the polling suggests that Trump's support is coming from people who do not ordinarily vote. Um, and I am still extremely dubious that these people are actually going to go to an Iowa caucus and actually vote. And then, you know, similarly in New Hampshire, um, depending upon what happens in Iowa, it would not shock me if you see shifts away from Trump. Um, so I, I, my prediction is this will play out like in a Howard Dean style scenario in that it looks like he's going to front runner right up until the moment that he isn't. Um, but that said, assuming that's the case, where do I think this energy goes? I, I suspect one of a few things is possible. The first is, is that Trump uh, de- decides to, to run as a third party. He thinks he's screwed over by the process and then he winds up essentially being a Ross Perot um, of the racist crowd, uh, which, you know, is great for Hillary Clinton, uh, very bad for the Republicans for this cycle. Um, and in the long term, possibly still good for the country in the sense of Trump will not do terribly well in that scenario. And that actually makes me feel good. Um, the other thing that can happen is that the energy literally dissipates, which is to say, Trump has mobilized a certain section of the population that actually really does not like politics, period. These people ordinarily do not vote. If Trump does not do terribly well, they will simply not vote again um, or continue to not vote, uh, in which case their effect on American politics is much less than would appear to be now. 
So this is this is where I really part company with the sort of Trump doesn't matter school, because if we have something like I'm just going to make up a number, 20 percent of our voting age population that feels like Trump Trump represents their scream of frustration and fears about their own circumstances. And we drive those people. Which, by the way, hold on. I just want to say here, this is one area where I'm not going to defend Trump, but I will point out that I do think he's touching something yes. that is actually genuine. Mm-hmm. In other words, there is a valid reason that these people are pissed off. I think they're targeting it at a different, the, the totally wrong object. But, you know, this ties into the, that sort of Case Deaton study that we, you know, yes. um, stuff about uh, the fact that sort of middle class American whites not doing well at all. Go ahead. Yeah. And there's nothing on the horizon that makes things a lot better for them in the near term is my yeah. worry because their yeah. problems their problems are structural their problems are not brought on by one i mean for the for in many ways not always but in many ways not brought on by one political party or the other and they're not frankly fixable by something anybody can do in the first 180 days so so yeah they dissipate but the frustration doesn't go away and how does it get you know how does it get um how does it get lit next time? And just, you know, in, in thinking about the long-term health of a society, this is really not where you want to be. No, that's that's true. Although, again, this, part of me wonders whether what we are witnessing, part of me wonders whether, frankly, one-fifth of the American population has always felt like this. In some cases, a lot more than one-fifth of, of the American population has felt like this. Um, and really, in some ways, it, it almost, it's like it bubbles up every once in a while and then it dissipates, which is to say, I don't know if this is any different from previous go-rounds. Um, the one way in which it's different is that the guy making this noise is now leading the primary by most of the conventional polling things, and that's unusual. Um, but I still don't think that's going to last. And then I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm with you in the sense of I want a society where these 20% actually winds up changing their minds, like let's say about some, you know, much as the way that the public has shifted on things like gay marriage. Um but I'm not sure that's actually possible. This might be an irreducible problem, much like, you know, in most other countries, there is probably one fifth of the population that holds racist, xenophobic views, if not more so. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly true that this is very parallel to what's happening in Europe. Um, right. And that, but no, I mean, so I want to agree violently with Lindsey Graham, um, who who drawing from the point you made, Dan, who said, you know, this kind of rhetoric puts translators and embassy personnel and everybody that works with the U.S. military around the world at at greater risk. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you're right. Nobody's going to flip from liking the U.S. to wanting to go out and and blow himself up because of one remark by Donald Trump. But if you imagine the highlight reel that ISIS is showing to recruits or that's being sent out on social media and, you know, there's nobody there to tell the 19-year-old sitting in his parents' basement in Belgium or London or Dagestan. Oh, you know, this Donald Trump guy, you know, the good thing is the American system worked and he didn't get, ah, he won't go anywhere. He'll fade after Iowa. So no, I, I think right now, look this way. I, I will, I cannot dispute that right now is the strongest moment for you to make this argument. I, I am hopeful. And this ties into something we'll talk about in a little bit that six months from now, we won't be having to talk about this, but, um, but that's a fair point that right now. Yeah. That's obviously it's, a, it's a, you know, I agree with you and Lindsey Graham. 
Well, that's an excellent pivot, maybe, to our 2015-2016 conversation. Well, no, no, no. I want to talk about uh, the Internet first, um, because that actually ties into Donald Trump. Because as as I've been blogging, you know, one of the problems about Trump is that Trump's racism and fascism mask his utter stupidity on other issues. It's a very clever tactic of his that way. Um, but it, it drives me nuts. So in the same South Carolina speech where he talks about, you know, where he right after he called for banning all Muslims. And by the way, can we just take a moment to appreciate the just abject stupidity of trying to implement that policy, much less the fact that it's illegal and immoral? I, I really um, it's a breathtakingly stupid suggestion. But, con- you know, an additional breathtakingly stupid suggestion that Trump made was that uh, there's a problem with the Internet. Because it leads to, you know, ISIS and, and the Islamic State are, are and Al Qaeda are using the internet to recruit people, and that uh, Donald Trump suggested, you know, we got to talk to people like Bill Gates and figure out a way to maybe shut down that part of the internet. And then he, I, he said, you know, sort of, he said very cl- clearly, said, oh, you know, everyone's going to say freedom of speech, freedom of speech. Oh no, no, oh no, 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 no. You know, I'm willing to speak like it is. Um, which again also came off as stupid. Except the interesting thing is, is that Trump was a second mover on that issue because 24 hours earlier, Hillary Clinton gave a speech that actually in content sounded awfully similar to Donald Trump and that she also talked about uh, encouraging Silicon Valley people to find ways to disrupt the internet and immediately address the notion of, oh, well, some people protest freedom of speech, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. And you know what? We still have to do something like this. And so I get disturbed when there's not that much of a difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton on issues. And I was curious about your take on this. Well, I mean, first of all, that's such a slate pitchy take that you just offered there, because as you say, Trump's Trump's take was, oh, we've got to talk to Bill Gates about shutting down the Internet. And Clinton's take was we've got to talk to Silicon Valley. I mean, Clinton, who knows that Bill Gates doesn't sit in Silicon Valley and isn't running a company anymore um, and, and, and disrupt radicals ability to use the internet to organize and radicalize. So, you know, I mean, this, some of the same words were in the sentence, but yeah, I, I call, I call slate pitch on that one. <laughs> okay. Um, I will also, I mean, I've been kind of driving myself nuts on this, the cyber security and cyber radicalization issues, because there are so very few people who actually understand what they're talking about. And so very many people opining on it. Yeah, I'm in the so, latter camp, just for the record. Go ahead. Yeah, no. So when you when you mentioned that you wanted to make this one of our topics today, I thought it's a, it's a really good opportunity for us to model sort of how pundits admit that they don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I will also say that I did have the opportunity recently to talk to various people who know more than I do about it, um, sort of from the Intel community and the Hill and the think tank world. And the reason people, the reason Clinton said you know, we've got to talk to the companies is that there have been these talks and they've been very inconclusive, frankly, because all sides think they have more to gain by sticking to their positions than actually making a deal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the way people on the Hill talk about this is, oh, yeah, well, everybody just comes up with their position paper. And there has not yet been the meeting of the minds on sort of what's the thing that we could actually do that would help. So, so I think, you know, this is a case where political pronouncements are masking some sort of genuine frustration at the, at the, the worker bee level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting. One of the guys I talked to compared it to, um, to child pornography. And he said, you know, look, there were free speech concerns around that. And we eventually figured out ways to, to 
regulate and criminalize a big swath of problematic behavior. And he said, we're going to get there eventually, mm-hmm. but we're not there yet. I, that is a nice, sane, rational response, which I have to say makes me feel better. But I still can't quite shit. Part of this might be that Hillary Clinton used the word disrupt, which um, just drives me around the bend. And it's not Hillary Clinton's fault. It's this whole. So I'm working on this book now about uh, the sort of changing market of foreign policy ideas in the U.S. And one of the things I'm going to be talking about is the, you know, is the Silicon Valleyization of the discourse, which includes the word disruption, Um, which is to say, if you want to call slate pitch on me for what I did, I want to call slate pitch on anyone that uses the word disruption to describe (laughs) what their foreign policy is going to be, Um, because it's just a load of crap. Um, And indeed, I think one of the more productive uh, uh, exchanges over the last year and a half um, has been, in fact, this sort of challenging of the management theory of disruptive innovation that Clayton Christensen made about 20 years ago and that Jill Lepore started tackling last year. And you're now seeing a, a, a much more fruitful exchange of ideas on, actually. Um, and I, and it, I, I thereby propose you know, what I call Dresner's rule, uh, modestly enough, which says anytime a politician appropriates a Silicon Valley buzzword, it indicates that that buzzword is actually meaningless in terms of its content. Um, so let me put it this way. I, what you say is perfectly fine. I'm willing to accept the notion that that there are ways in which private companies can cooperate with the government to regulate the internet in such a way as to mute the possibility of extremist, you know, radical uh, violence-inducing dialogue without, you know, trampling on the First Amendment. But just please, let's not use the word disrupt. Yeah, well, and I'll also say I think it's very reasonable that this topic may should may should make you anxious, mm-hmm. right? I mean. Yeah. And I'll say that I noticed just before we got on this morning in um, the FBI Director Comey's testimony before Congress today, he says that um, the the foiled attackers in Galveston, what is that, a year or two years ago, yeah. um, that on the morning of the attack, they communicated with um, someone who I guess is a known organizer in the Middle East 109 times, but we don't know what's in those emails or communications because they were encrypted. Right. Now, you know... On the one hand, um, there's a couple of reposts that one could make to that, which is, number one, had you guys even picked that out beforehand, would you in fact have been able to decrypt them and get the information fast enough, even if you were allowed to? Exactly. Number two, um, possibly the exchange of 109 communications by itself should have really given you most of the information you needed. Hey, yeah, the metadata actually would have been useful. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's a way that um any any one of these individual instances can can really get blown into allegedly having a preventive significance that it might not actually have had. Right. But at the same time, oh, that's interesting that here's a person who knew enough to encrypt his messaging and and actually was communicating something connected unusual connected to the unusual thing he attempted to do later in the day. So, but but the other thing that kind of drives me a little crazy is on the on the privacy side is that you know your data our data is not even remotely private. Um, you mean from corporations? From, or from corporations, the right? And okay. I I just get frustrated at this sort of the the tendency among a certain subset of the cyber community to think that sort of all. Whole, all corporate holdings of my data are fine and all government holdings of my data are bad. 
this is actually the and this, by the way, is the inverse of the European attitude about all of this, which is Europeans are far more comfortable with the government having their data, but extremely allergic to the idea of corporations having the data. Yeah. Um, <sighs> so, you know, just basically the whole the whole construct of how much of our lives and our you know, fairly intimate aspects of our lives we entrust to forces <laughs> over which we have no meaningful oversight at this particular juncture. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm laughing. I don't know if you saw this. I tweeted this last night. I finally gave in last night and downloaded Microsoft 10 uh, because my computer had been <laughs> insisting on it essentially for the last six months. And I was keep saying no, 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 no. And finally last night I'm like, okay, I just, I'm, not, I'm tired of the, uh, the reminders. Here you go. And when I turned on my computer again, there was a a sentence, you know, literally there was just one sentence on a blue screen saying, all your files are in the same place. And it was like the most HAL 2001 sentence that just like totally freaked me the hell out. Um, and then the problem was that sentence was there for like another 30 seconds before the computer finally started working. And I was thinking, oh, God, you know, I've, I finally uh, I finally done it. Um, so, yes, I've, I. The idea that I'm, I'm a vulnerable to autonomic or autonomous uh, robotic processes is, is certainly a valid one. <laughs> yeah. But we do have, and I mean, this, this is a broader sort of problem of the regulatory state, right? That technology outside government is moving much faster than technology inside government for oh, sort of understandable and probably not fixable reasons. So sort of no matter what level you think um, privacy ought to be set at, you know, we have not at all as a society figured out how to maintain that, you know, how to have a public sector that can meaningfully keep up with the, the private sector. Yes. Uh, or the one whether thing that's I, even the right goal, frankly. I suppose the only thing that makes me sleep better at night is the knowledge that as bad as the U.S. government is at this, I suspect it's still better than most other governments at dealing with this, um, just because there actually is at least some uh, relationship between uh Washington and Silicon Valley. And also, you know, I don't know if you read that political article, you know, one of, one of the myths with respect to cyber uh, security concerns is the notion that other countries, you know, are, are have much greater offensive capabilities when the capabilities when the truth is the U.S. actually has far and away the greater cyber offensive capabilities. We're just not using them. And by the way, that's the right thing, uh, because this opens up an entire if you were to do so, it opens up an entire new can of worms. So, uh, you know, this is this is December. So um, and, you know, at least. Unfortunately, when you look at it in the short term, there are many ways in which to think this year stunk. Um, but I think there are other ways in which you could point out there have actually been positive trends. I think I, I wrote a blog post right before Thanksgiving, arguing the myriad ways in which the U.S. should actually be thankful for what's uh, what's happened this year. Um, but we should focus more interestingly enough on what the big events will be for the coming year. The two big things that I would focus on, interestingly enough, well, there are three things I would focus on, and two of them are happening this month, um, which is first the outcome of the Paris Climate Change Summit um, to see whether or not uh, there actually is a broad-based accord on um, trying to reduce CO2 emissions, because you know that's kind of important with the planet and everything. Um, but I also think it's somewhat significant as a as a symbol or as an exemplar for the sort of global governance, which is to say that if you can actually get meaningful cooperation on climate change, then, hey, maybe there are other issues on which you can have meaningful cooperation on, um, which would be nice. 
particularly since I've written a book arguing that the system works. So it would be nice if that, for just a personal selfish perspective, I would like to know that, in fact, the system continues to work, because I think that's the argument that I've made. Um, the second event that will happen this month, I believe soon, uh, will be the Fed's decision to start raising interest rates in the United States. And I think the interesting thing for the next year is the degree to which the Fed actually continues to raise interest rates and the extent to which the U.S. and the global economy reacts to that. Um, and one thing, again, system working kind of thesis I would make is that one of the things I've been encouraged by over the last couple of months was that I think the Fed was inclined to raise rates back in September and then held off. Um, and I think the reason they held off primarily was not about the United States, was about, but was about the global economy. It was about fears of uh, both European and Chinese economic weakness and the worry that raising rates in the United States would be sort of the, the, the tipping point for, for further instability. Um, and they held off, and I think that was a wise thing to do. And so it's encouraging to know, in contrast to previous you know, Fed history, that this Fed might actually be at least somewhat cognizant of the international ramifications of what it does with respect to interest rates. Um, so I'm modestly more optimistic about this process than I was a year ago. And then the third thing is um, the U.S. election and, and essentially in some ways what we were talking about before, which is whether Trump fades from view or not and whether you have, you know, what is essentially a, a what looks like a more conventional ele uh, election race or something more unusual and then who wins, obviously. So I'm going to predict that 2016 will be brought to you by implementation and the letter T. And on implementation, what I mean is I think there will be a climate deal of some kind later this month. The really interesting question is how good both the implementation of national commitments is and the implementation of um, funding uh, developing country amelioration is. And, you know, that's one where you really have to watch the difference between the pledges and the transfers. So, Absolutely. so I would point to that as implementation number one. Implementation number two is the Iran deal. You know, uh -huh. we're now we're now almost to the point where the, we are at the point where the Iranians have come clean about their past history. The IAEA has presented the report. Um, so now we actually have to start implementing and moving forward. And we will we will see how that goes, and we will see how it is judged to go. So those are two pieces of implementation that have short-term and long-term security consequences in 2016. And then for T, mm -hmm. um, I give you three, three societies that in different ways are trying to sustain or hang on to democratic gains under, under, under challenging circumstances that in each case will say a lot about their, the region they live in. And those three countries are Taiwan, which has a presidential election, which the pro Beijing party is expected to lose. Mm -hmm. Um, Turkey, which is facing massive both internal and external pressures, and mm -hmm. Tunisia, which is facing even more massive internal and external pressures, but which at this point is is a really, really bright light. It's both a really, really bright light and a really big worry in the region. Yeah. So then just for fun and to throw in an extra T, we'll have the effort to ratify TTP and the effort to negotiate TTIP. T that was punny. Um, uh, I will throw in one other region, which I do think, you know, again, actually was promising in 2015 and might even be more promising in 2016, which is I think you're seeing Latin America um, potentially drifting away from its experiment uh, with Bolivarianism. Um, you see that uh, or, or, and, and sort of far left economic policies. You saw that in the Argentine elections. 
Um, you certainly saw that in the Venezuelan uh, parliamentary elections. Um, it will be interesting to see uh, in what direction Brazil moves, uh, given that Dilma Rousseff is uh, facing political difficulties, and whether or not um, a year from now you see Venezuela looking somewhat different in terms of its uh, outlook than it is right now. Um, there are obviously some countries where the, the you know the sort of Bolivarian idea is still uh, entrenched, namely Nicaragua and Bolivia. But I don't know if those countries are going to be doing terribly well either. So um, a Latin America that is, let's say less hostile to the United States um, for ideological reasons, I think is a good thing for the United States. So, you know, hopefully that will be promising. Yeah, I do think the question there is, as various countries go through transitions, um, how how smooth are they able to be? How much support from outside are they able to get to, to help make them smooth versus does this turn into actually a creator of more more instability? I think, you know, certainly one worries about how the transition in Venezuela actually happens, but um, never fear. We'll be back to talk about all of that. So um, happy holidays and happy new year. Happy holidays. And uh, I wish you a very uh, hopeful and and prosperous 2016. And likewise, look forward to look forward to doing it with you. Yes. Bye blogging heads.